Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Live show 36, we were joined by uh, Steve Lathrop from Lathrop & Sons. Um, they make some of the best hiking boots on the market right now, as well as a really nice insole. Something that me and Dan really found was uh, useful for us this year during deer season, and we wanted to get Stephen on and, and let him talk about his product a little bit. We also talked about a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, talked about it like a, a news story um, that went on last week that that we kind of stumbled across. And uh, we talked about why Iowa is such a good place to hunt, and if other states could adopt better practices, to become Iowa. Um, we got into the boot talk, um, and then answered a whole bunch of questions at the end, which was good. So, with that, no ads for you today. So just make sure you go over to the YouTube channel, hit that subscribe button, and thanks for everybody for the support. Um, you can also go to wherever you're listening to this podcast and leave us a review. That also would help greatly. All right. With that, let's get into the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome everybody. back to the show. How's everybody doing tonight? <laughs> we already got some comments going, so. Um, yeah. Everybody's like, a lot of people's gun seasons kind of wrapped up to uh, this weekend, and um, we thought we'd kind of talk about a little something different tonight and uh we got a guest Stephen lathrop from lathrop and Stun sons is going to uh talk with us tonight we're not going to talk about boots the whole night we got all kinds of uh things to go over before we get to the boots but we get a lot of questions about your the the boots we wore this uh season kind of in the hill country settings and um it was yours so thought we'd have you on so thanks for getting on we appreciate you inviting us yeah, no problem. And we'll get into Lathrop and Sons and all that. But uh, anyways, Dan, have you been out hunting or anything this, this week? I've been pwning it, yeah. Muzzleloader season, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've got a sore throat. i got a head cold. I've been nasty out. and It's been hard. We're all going through a little, uh, I don't know what it is, some kind of sickness in our house right now. So not, mm-hmm. been, that fun, not that been fun of a day, but... Uh, my wife and my boy got it worse than I did. So, uh, still seeing some good rut action over by me. I got really? Chasing, yeah, I had a um, buck chase a doe and a fawn past me today. Hmm. Gosh, it just seems like the rut this year just like trickled on. Yeah, it's just trickle rut. It has. Yeah. Have you guys? Uh, you guys are from Illinois, like yeah. kind of what? What area yeah. of Illinois, Stephen? Like, what, do you, what would you call it? Yeah, well, I call, we call it yeah southeastern Illinois, but yeah. uh, I was going to mention that that our second firearm season just opened today, so we'll be in Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, okay, you so see, you guys have like an early one and then one right now, I guess. Yeah, they they do, they do one in November and then they have this, and then it'll go into a muzzleloader season. Um, but it, it for us. For James and I, it's been a trickle hunt. I mean, it's the easiest way to describe it for us as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's good and bad. And if you got, you know, a longer window of time, you can get out there and, and still see it. I saw, I saw a big buck actually pushing a little buck kind of across the wide open field on the way to work just this week. So I, yep. like, I expected it to be a little doe. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a good buck. And, I got up there and was like, that's just a year and a half old. And I mean, he was, he was on him and he was stomping him out across his field. So 
it's getting That's pretty funny. serious now. Yeah, 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 yeah. You guys are uh, still shotgun only, right? Um, they actually, yes, it's shotgun, but they've got, um, you can use a handgun or a muzzleloader do, during that season. Mm. So, can you guys use like 44 mags, like mm-hmm. long rifles? And yeah, kind of you can use uh, 44, 357. There's a few others, I think. Right. And pistol that's, calibers. That's, yeah, that's not really our thing, but I mean, we, we go out and, and play around late season, you know, take the kids out and that. So, yeah. Deer hunting Cajun, which I think they're from uh, Florida. I apologize, deer hunting Cajun, if that's not where you're from, but they, he's just saying that the rut is just now thinking about starting down there. That's where we need to go here in a month is go down there and hunt, yeah. follow the rut down that way. That'd be fun. Um, Maybe that late season is going to be really good for you. Yeah, that's what I I'm I want to go somewhere hey. after the first of the year. I don't know anything better than hunting some standing soybeans or corn or you know lots of snow and really cold weather. Mm. Yeah, yep, that's a great time to kill a big one is when it's being like that. Oh, I just um, love being out there that time. Yeah, I was looking at Illinois around some just some public land. There's a lot of public land around there that has crops either close around it or, you know, um, yeah, there's hardly anybody else in the late season too. Oh. The hunting gets good and everybody else stays in. I usually do pretty good in late season. So kind of I enjoy forward it. late season this year. I, enjoy I was going to say, say, Dan, you usually don't have a tag for late season this year. You'll get to take advantage of it a little bit. Cause your, your guys' muzzleloader tag is your gun tag, right? Like that doesn't count for your, for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's what I assumed. I wasn't sure though. And your, is your muzzleloader season just until this weekend and then it's over? Uh, it's still Tuesday. Oh, okay. Yeah. I could yeah. use a bow during a uh, muzzleloader though. If I want. See, to. that's the way it is in Illinois. You can bow hunt during the muzzleloader season. Indiana too. Our bow season is October first through whatever January first or whatever it is, and there's no breaks in it or anything. We got a lesser uh, weapon rule, so if it's a gun season, you can use a bow. Yeah, you know, like rifle, you can use muzzleloader or bow, and a muzzleloader you can use muzzleloader or bow. You know. Hmm. Yep. So uh, before I get too much farther uh, along here, if everybody, uh, if you're new to the the show, if you got any questions, just leave them in the comments, and then at the end we'll we'll uh, answer as many as we can. And also today, I'll I'll uh, I'll put a link in the comments for y'all to call in later if you want to and uh, ask a specific question. So if you got any foot questions or boot questions, it'd be, this would be a good podcast to ask. So um, anyway, also, we've we got this little trend going of having like a news story every show. And I'm going to start trying to do that every week. And then I put the I put the link to the news. Uh, in this case, it's a video uh, in the description of the podcast. So if you like or the description of the video and if you want to, um, you know, look at that after we've talked about it or something you're more than welcome to go on that link but anyway um so i think this was taking place this little tidbit was in uh the the charges were pressed on this guy named david uh he's he's was hunting in west virginia and killed a a nice really nice buck in west virginia um and he lived in new uh north carolina and uh he also killed a really nice buck in north carolina 
and I, it sounded like to me like that was kind of the end of the story in his mind. And he, uh, I guess a couple months later, he got a knock on his door and it was game wardens. And he, um, they started questioning him about his, his bucks and he just kind of answered everything honestly and told them, you know, they're at the taxidermist and, uh, that's kind of where they left it. And, and they ended up coming back that day, a whole bunch of game wardens, like two of them from West Virginia, two of them from, uh, from, um, North Carolina. Cool. Yeah. And they ended up taking both his bucks from him, uh, and really didn't tell him why or, or, you know, the reasons for taking them. Um, and like all those things do it drug out forever and ever. And he went to court for it. And then there was no evidence at all. They didn't bring any evidence, evidence to the, the courtroom for him. Um, and it sounded like they delayed the court sentence like a whole bunch of times because they were trying to collect evidence on him and ended up, they just completely dropped the charges with they're trying to do no, DNA to prove that the deer that he shot in North Carolina was from Virginia. Yeah. That's, I think that's what they were assuming happened. Um, and the way the story ended up unfolding is it sounded like some people from West Virginia, where he shot that big buck, um, in that area had gotten, a hold of the game wardens and was complaining essentially that a out of stater came and shot yeah. one of their big deer. Um, but anyways, en- ended up, they took the Cape and everything and they, they didn't must have not taken care of the capes and they, both deer. Both both deer. Yeah. They took the capes and then, uh, the capes got ruined and all that stuff when he got them back. And, um, what, what I think, and this is kind of the conversation, the way I wanted the conversation to go was initially whenever they took the deer from the guy before they had any, um, evidence or any trial or anything, uh, they posted a picture with the game wardens holding the big racks um, and essentially saying that this guy got in trouble for this and we caught him and and here's the trophies, you know. And do you guys think that's weird that, like, game wardens do that? Like, I see them on the internet all the time, like, showing off the big deer that they... Some people like that because they like uh, poachers to be shamed. But uh, yeah. in, my, in my opinion, you better have some evidence if you're calling somebody a poacher. And they blatantly called that guy a poacher. Yeah. So I think there is uh, some old school mentality. It's going away in a lot of uh, places that are more up to date. The mm-hmm. old school wardens used to just target people who shot trophy bucks. I mean, I got a lot of that when I was younger. Um, but the wardens nowadays are, are pretty cool, cool with you. I mean, the good thing about yeah. me is everything's video recorded. So they right. have a hard time pinning something on me that I didn't do. Yeah. And Dan, I know you said uh, in the past, like you used to get a lot of, uh, since you were hunting so deep into these swamps and stuff, it'd take you forever to get back to the truck. And you always got like accused of shooting deer late or whatever. Yeah. Um, just because of the time it takes to get back to the vehicle. Uh, gosh, that'd be frustrating to deal with. Yeah. Well, some of these swamps are three miles across. I mean, you go out there a mile and a half and yeah, it could be a long time to get to the truck. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of sounds like what this guy was was running into. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. Like, I, I get the I get the part where you're saying like they need to like poachers need to be, you know, penalized or whatever, and that's very true. But it's just it's just kind of weird. I go a little overboard too, though. I mean, uh, um, no, I don't like poaching any more than anybody else does. But I mean, this this whole uh, um, pay for it by the based on the score of the antlers kind of thing at poaching poaching you broke the same law if you shoot a spike as if you shot a 50 pointer 
poaching is poaching. They both did the same thing. I don't have any problem with it being a $15,000 fine, but it should be a $15,000 fine if it's a spike or a 15-pointer, right? You know, um, a poaching one's poaching one, basically. Yeah. I think I think that's all based on state. I think the state laws are different for what how they deal with that kind of stuff. I mean, I kind of I get their theory on doing that, charging more for a bigger deer because it's like a, um, it would be like a, I don't know, it's like it's it's worth it's it's more of an incentive for someone to poach, you know. But um, you you know what's what's interesting is uh, like uh, I know a case where uh, a friend of mine's uh, niece was murdered. And uh, they knew what apartment she was in when she disappeared, and they were pretty sure she was in there. They couldn't yeah. go in there without any kind of warrant or anything, and it took them like two days to go and find her, and then she was murdered. And uh, if you're a warden and you think the guy's got an extra bluegill in there, you can just walk in in Wisconsin. You know, uh, wardens don't yeah. need uh, any kind of uh, search warrants or anything. They don't even have to give you a reason. They can just walk into your house at any time. And uh, federal agents can't do that. FBI can't mm-hmm. do that. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know. Yeah, I, I wonder what made what, what that like. What happened to make that come about? Where people where they could do that? You know. Uh, I think because people would hide evidence or something. You know, before they'd get a warrant. But uh, I mean, you think about this more serious uh, offenses of what people could be doing. You'd think the FBI or something would have more authority than them. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's, I, I get the rules. I mean, I get why, you know, officers and stuff don't have that authority. Cause I'm like everything else that would get, you know, end up getting abused in some, some cases. And they're probably trying to prevent things like this from happening. You know, um, so people when, when I look at that case, I, I, you know, they got a trail, uh, like the uh, the people in West Virginia have a trail cam picture that looks like the buck that, that they claim that he shot in West Virginia that's from North Carolina. Whether yeah. it is or not, I don't know. But it warrants yeah. an investigation. What it doesn't warrant is uh, automatic accusations and uh, put it in a newspaper and put it on news stations. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's what was weird about is the is them holding the trophies up and smiling and all that. I'm like, man. Um, anyway, and who knows, like you're probably right. There's probably a couple sides of that story too, but, um, mm-hmm. I just thought it was, you know, interesting. You know, uh, we had a, we had a case in, um, Waukesha County, Wisconsin, where a 14 year old boy, um, shot a buck, uh, in, uh, Vernon Marsh, which is a public area. And, uh, the, the losses, um, at the time was. Uh, at 14, he didn't have to hunt with his dad, but he had to be within sight or hearing of him. And he was. He was within sight and hearing of his dad, but his dad was in a tree about, um, I want to say, 75 yards from him. But he shot the buck, and uh, it dropped, and he got down, and it was a trophy buck, buck of a lifetime for a 14-year-old kid, uh, especially on public land. He ran over to the buck that was in the water and dragged it up onto the high ground, which is about 20 feet or something. And he was being watched with binoculars by a warden and they confiscated his buck and put it on the wall of shame as a poached deer because he moved it before he put a tag on it. Oh, in Wisconsin, we have what they call the, the, the wall of shame. And every time there's a real big poached deer, they put it on that wall. And a lot of people were accusing that warden of just one to add another one to the wall. 
where I think that would have been a good opportunity for him to just talk to the kid about how you're supposed to tag a deer and you shouldn't touch it. And yeah, you know, until it's tagged kind of thing. And, you know, a kid ain't going to have that rule book memorized. You know, I think, you know, again, that was some old school wardens and that was probably 15 years ago. I think a lot of the wardens now are a lot better. Um, yeah. A lot more educated about uh, working with people, at least around here. It reminds this that that story reminds me of a I don't remember where I heard of that. Uh, it was a different podcast or a different, uh, but uh, there's a guy in his hometown that killed a big giant buck like that, and he he did it illegally, and now it's on one of those walls, you know, like in inside of the office, uh, the conservation office or whatever, and mm-hmm. uh, he's so proud of it still that like when people come over, he still takes them into the office and shows them the buck or whatever. <laughs> And they let him come in there and show people that buck. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you got to see this thing I killed. Uh, that's funny. Um, but anyway, uh, someone commented, Dan, about the, they made a good point about, you are talking about like the different finds. And uh, I think this guy, is, his name is Josh Jordan. He says, um, he, see, he sees the, uh, the need for different finds because if you shoot a doe to feed your family, let's say that versus shooting a trophy buck for a mount, it's kind of two different ways of thinking about it. Like, yeah, maybe so. Yeah, okay, uh, but uh, I mean, uh, if the trophy deer scores uh, uh, 125 inches versus uh, 200 inches, it should cost. Yeah, more. right. No, I get what you're saying too. I think that's why they give. A, that's why they have a range in finds. You, you know. Yeah. Um, if you get a speeding ticket, it's not necessarily an exact amount. Well, maybe yeah. speeding would probably be a bad example because it kind of is. But uh, if you if you break a law, there's usually a range of fine because it's a judgment, you know, based yeah. on on to what degree you broke that mm-hmm. law. You know, that's why it's up to a ten thousand dollar fine or up to this. Where um, I think it's up to a judge or a jury to decide that. Uh, well, this guy was killing that for trophy or versus food. So if the guy hunting for food shoots a deer, poaches a deer for food, and it just happens to have a big rack, well, then he's a, then he's a, <laughs> you know, that's different. He's yeah. still poaching for food. He's yeah. still shooting first deer he sees if he was doing it to feed his family. And I don't think really anybody's feeding their family anymore by poaching. I, I, I really think at uh, the government handouts and everything else, I mean, there's nobody out there starving. Right. Right. Um, deer hunting Cajuns. He, he said, uh, we need to start chasing the fentanyl problems instead of the, the deer hunting problems. But I just, that, that comment reminded me of a, a story. I, I used to work with a sheriff. He like worked part-time for my dad when I was little and I worked for my dad too in high school. And, uh, he would, he'd be a sheriff after, uh, you know, in the evenings he was the sheriff and, he came in one morning. He was like just in a horrible mood. And I was like, what's wrong with you? You know? And he goes, he goes, I had to deal with one of your conservation officer buddies uh, last night. I'm like, Oh yeah. He's like, I hate those guys. I'm like, what, what's wrong with them? You know? And he's like, here I was all night chasing around, you know, people on drugs or this guy beat his wife up. And I was dealing with that. And I walk into the, the sheriff's office and there's John and he has eight, bass laid out on the table and he's measuring them out and i said i said here i am walking around trying to fix all these problems in this county and this guy just took a bunch of fish away from an old man that was trying to have a good day and he's, <laughs> he's 
was just laughing. He goes, you just, he goes, is this what you guys do all day is ride your boats around in your four wheelers and ruin people's afternoons. <laughs> like, jeez. Very funny though. I'm like, I never thought about it like that, but it is kind of weird whenever you, uh, uh, I was like, oh, I said, I told him, I said, well, there's, there's reasons for all that. Uh, anyway, one other topic before we get, uh, dive into a little more, uh, of Steven's expertise here is, uh, someone commented on a video, like a couple, a couple videos ago, probably more than a couple ago. I think it was when we were talking about talking with Scott Buckley about how good of a state Iowa is to hunt. And I must've made a comment on the, on the video that, uh, you know, not every state can be like Iowa. Um, and I think Aaron Warbritton actually brought it up. Uh, I heard him say it once is like, if every state was like Iowa, um, you know, we probably wouldn't have hunting because it's, you know, the, we need, you need those states like Michigan and Pennsylvania that, and, and Wisconsin that just everybody hunts and that's a tradition. And if we lose that, that's gone, you know, mm-hmm. um, that's the point I was kind of making in the video, but, um, I can't remember the gentleman's name that commented on it, but he made up, he's like, he kind of disagreed with me. And he said, if, if every state managed like Iowa managed, every state would be like Iowa and everybody would have all these giant deer to hunt. We wouldn't have to wait to hunt them. Like, you know, we have to wait five or, you know, four or five years for Iowa. Um, what do you guys think about that? You think if you think every state can manage like Iowa and. No, no, because numbers of hunters differ. Genetics differ. Um, there's uh, too many differences that uh, that affect that. I mean, sure, every state could improve their hunting, um, but Iowa could improve their hunting too. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The main, I don't think Iowa has very good uh, management principles, just like most states. I think they manage by numbers like most states. I think they got big bucks because they have less hunters. I think the biggest thing they do for management is not let a ton of non-residents come in there and kill them all. But, yeah, uh, yeah I don't think that they do anything really special. It's just they, they have a lot less hunters in, uh, like, Wisconsin or Michigan or something like that. Yeah, and I think they also, I mean, their habitat's, phenomenal obviously but they also i mean you could kill quite a few bucks if you're a resident i think in iowa i think you can kill a few maybe you think they're uh, habitat great i mean it's farm country with trolls yeah. and some of the places i've done well hunting down there i mean you can see for miles and you can hardly see a tree you know oh, really I think hmm. that that's, it's like consistent great habitat i think it depends on where you're at in the state yeah, but that's everywhere. I mean, there's pockets of really good hunting everywhere. I mean, people say, well, Michigan sucks or this sucks or that sucks or yeah. you know, Illinois is the place to go. But really, um, if you're not in the right spot in those places, that ain't really true. I mean, it can go right down to the right farm, the right property or whatever. You know, some places, uh, you know, around my house have incredible hunting if you could get access to it, you, you know, but yeah. you have access, you know, but somebody could get access. Yeah, you know, right. then, then it would be far better than some trip to Iowa, say. You, you yeah, say, I, I, it's it's all dependent on exactly what property you're on and what lives there. Right. 
Yeah, I guess I was more referring to just like the Midwest in general is good. Hap- like it's it's not the it's not Florida or you know someplace like that where it's. I mean, that's one of the reasons it's a good state is because it's in the in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, well, it is a good but, destination because um, most of the good deer counties. I mean, if you go there, you see good deer. Oh yeah, um, and it's a lot easier to get on them than say say in Michigan or or central Wisconsin or you know, you know. So yeah, I think you made yeah. a good point. I think uh, I, I, this is a little bit off topic, but it's like um, a lot of people don't understand how like Southern Indiana doesn't have more deer. And I really don't know what the, the answer is either, but like, cause we have like pretty vast, you know, hill country where they could get away from people. Um, you know, we have a lot of agriculture around here for food and stuff. And yeah, that's um, one of the first things that struck me was how few, few deer there were there. When I yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's surpri- yeah. That's really surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you see a, if you see a few deer in a, a sit, you know, during outside of late season, you know, you can get in pockets during late season where there'll be 20 deer, you know, all together. But like, if you're just hunting October through, you know, December, it's, it's, um, you know, a few deer, a we hunt, five deer. If I do a rut hunt, a week of rut hunting in Wisconsin, I'll see 50 <laughs> at least. Yeah. You know, yep. So you got to yeah, use not... not seeing anything, but you, but the quality is there. Are those five deer? Oh yeah, the shooters. Right. We're all seeing more does and fawns and spikes and forks and. Right, and it's like everything else. Like you were saying a second ago, Dan. Like if you were down here, and you're on some, you know, really, really managed, really supreme property, you probably see a lot of deer, you know, or more deer than that. But, um, yeah. but yeah, we don't have like a ton of deer. You guys have pretty good hunting around you, though, right, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I was just was going to ask you, like, you know, if you go in and you say you don't set all day, so a morning set, we'll, we'll say evening, because my evenings seem to be a little better in my mornings. Just maybe it's the ground that I hunt. Okay, um, what I mean would four deer be a good evening? Yeah, in Indiana. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, excellent yeah. evening from what I'm used to. But then again, uh, you got to remember, uh, Steve, I think you're hunting a private farm that you guys manage. Um, we're pretty much talking about public mostly. Well, and I would, I would say then that would be a good hunt, but even, even some of the private ground that I hunt, I don't think our numbers are great because yeah i mean a five five deer i mean there's nights i might see a doe and two fawns and that's it we we this county where we're at in in down in here we've been hit several years you know four or five years back we got hit and lost a lot of deer and yeah that's tough uh one of my friends was hunting from he's from wisconsin was hunting down here zank and he got stopped by a warden and they just got talking to talk. And he asked him about that. He's like, what, what do you think? Why is there not more deer here? And, and that's what the warden said. He, he thought that about five, 10 years ago and about five years ago that we got hit with EHD real bad in this that's area. Exactly what happened. Um, it was kind of, it was, it was, it was really strange, but you know, when you see that and having been through that, you're right. It was, it was like 10 years and five years. Yeah, the, the I could, year was worse than the five year. Yeah, at that ten year yep. point, man, there were guys finding lots of deer. 
Yep. And I can remember when I was uh, younger, Dan, and like my dad would, would tell me too, like there used to be more deer around here than there than there is now. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not complaining at all. I love hunting here. I, I just gotten used to the lack of deer numbers and I prefer quantity, quality over quantity. <laughs> sure. uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but it's, well, it we, had, it is. Well, we had a really high quantity of deer. Our mm-hmm. hunting was way better for trophy bucks. Yeah. Uh, I would see a lot more trophy bucks. I'd see a lot more deer period, but um, when they knocked those numbers down, it, it got a lot harder to get on trophy bucks. Yeah. In the woods, he said that uh, they should limit doe killing a while then and and they have this year they actually took away we used to have a doe season after like after season was over or after regular season was over they have a week of any weapon doe season where you could shoot more does and they took that away this year so they're and they're they're uh, discouraging non-residents from shooting them too i mean they'll let you shoot one if you want to pay like i mean it was like 300 bucks almost yeah a doe tag here super super expensive doe take for 20 dollars and they don't buy as many as they want yeah Yeah, some of my buddies that were hunting down here, they were tough. They were like, geez, I said, I guess I'm not going to buy a doe tag. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't either. I'd go shoot one up there if you can do doe. Uh, but, oh, well, it is what it is. I just thought that question was interesting to bring up and, and talk about. It's something I hadn't really thought about too much as far as, like, the management practices of everything. Um, anyway, all right. Let's talk about Lathrop and Sons a little bit, Steven. So when I, when I – um. Wore, wore his boots on uh, the Battle of the Bows challenge when we're up in the mm-hmm. hills. I got what a lot that? of questions about him. It was just our, uh, it was one of the hunts we went on, Stephen. It was a hill country hunt in western Wisconsin, and we okay. were wearing those boots. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of comments about your, uh, the Lathrop and Son boots. But so, um, can you just tell us a little bit about Lathrop and Sons and kind of your guys' background? Because I think that's kind of what makes you guys unique compared to other boot manufacturers yeah so i'll kind of set the stage both james and i i'm 51 and james 49 he'll be 50 this year maybe he'll be 49 you know how that stuff goes with brothers you don't don't remember all that but we were raised in a podiatrist setting so that's a foot doctor our father's a podiatrist till he'll be retiring either this week or next and we would help assist him medically, uh, surgically, and then we both went to school to make foot orthotics. So foot orthotics are the braces and the shoes. And James and I have both been avid bow hunters uh, since I was 15. James was 14. And we started to want to go on some of these bigger hunts. and what we found out was that there was a need for outfitting some of these boots, getting them fitted up correctly. And we were just helping some friends out. You know, we, we had no intention of doing this. This was just, yeah, we've got oodles of material in the basement, bring your boots in. It'll be fun. We'll hang out and, you know, talk hunting. And we started doing this for guys. And I mean, it was really helping people. And what we, really realized was a lot of this footwear that we were getting, we would start evaluating it and looking at what comes as an insole on the boot. And we knew what we had was like way up here quality wise. So it was just like 
modifying that fit. So you, you improve the fit, you improve the overall comfort, the performance. And then we really dove into more of the mountain hunting scene and then started fitting a lot of these boots. And then, I mean, we've done it from importing brands and bringing them in from Germany and fitting those boots to guys to private labeling a boot with a brand. And then we finally in 2017 just said, you know, we basically have been fitting all these different boots for ourselves and all these people. We decided to start our own brand and, and it wasn't easy and it was frightening. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, that's pretty spooky. I mean, you're shipping boots all over the world. You live in the Midwest in a town of 7,000. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I can hunt whitetail right out my door. And uh, it's work. You know, we took all of our passion and our understanding clinically and moved it into these boots. And we work with a designer and we have a manufacturer now. So it's, it's, been, it's been a wild ride. It really has been. Yeah, that's super cool um I believe, I had... uh, what i really love about them is that they they fit my whole foot they wrap around it and uh i just um getting into the hill country when i wear a rubber boot or uh just a generic boot i come back my ankles are sore my knees are sore my feet are sore and it just feels like uh it feels like i'm walking barefoot but i got rigid feet is what it yeah. feels like yeah you know, I was talking with a guy today about it and, and he received his boots and, and he was commenting on the fit. Like he said, the first time I put this in, like I've, I've had some, I've had some stiffer hunting boots. I didn't really know what to expect. And my wife was watching me put these boots on the living room and I put my foot down in them and I grabbed the laces and I drew those laces up. And he said, I, it's really hard for me to explain what this felt like around my ankle and in the back, like where your Achilles tendon is like, you know, this portion of the back of the heel and then the sides on, on both sides, this wrapping, he said, it really felt like a ski, like I was putting a ski boot on, like the padding around my ankle, I felt very stable. But when I put the boot on, I felt like I was rocking in the boot, like it rocked with me and it sped me through my gait. It, it just was very fluid. It wasn't stiff and, and cumbersome. And, and uh, you know, this year, just a lot of the hunting, because I never really dove into a lot of late season hunting. I mean, we, we yeah, we got some cold weather early, didn't we, in November for, for Midwest guys, maybe not for Dan up there. But, you know, Josh down here, we, I mean, I killed that last buck on that Friday night before that snow hit. That was mm -hmm. the real cold front that hit, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I was wearing my Encompass, the same boots you guys have got, mm -hmm. same boot. And, you know, I mean, I, I think I may have even talked to you about it, you know, that I, like that first two weeks of October, I had to use kind of a mobile setup to, to just set it and hang and hunt. And I did that two, moved two different times in there on this specific butt. And I was close, got real close to him, but just that that there is something about the boot the structure of the sole of the boot 
the density of the outsole on the boot. It's not too hard, not too soft, because you can go too soft and it's and it twists it around a lot. I really enjoyed it. Like I spent a lot of time, you know, climbing, standing on steps. It just it really makes a difference. It did for me. Yeah, I feel so, like uh, when you get a customer that um wants a pair of boots, maybe he's going on a sheep hunt or something. Mm -hmm. Um and he lives far away from you. How do you fit him to the boot? So James and I have come up with two different fitting options. Fitting option one, I call it a quick fit. It's not listed on the website. It's a quick fit. You get on the phone and we talk about your foot type. Clinically, our experience, I can ask some targeted questions about your foot. And believe it or not, I've identified what I'm looking at. Like I have a really good idea of the type of foot I'm looking at. And I'm going to be able to sit and make a suggestion on the boot and make a recommendation on a size based on that. It's not 100% all the time, but I guarantee it's better than somebody getting on Amazon and click buy it now. Yeah, and that's what you do with me is is you I'll just like tell you the exact how the conversation went. You were you got to ask me like what what kind of boots have you worn in the past? And I'm like, Well, I've had the Solomon Quest and I had I had those in tens. And you're like, Okay, any other ones? And I said, Well, I also like the Zamberlin, whatever they are, the guides, I have those in nine and a half or whatever that was. And you're like, Okay, yeah, you know, and then and then you sent me these and they were like literally perfect. I mean, I, I didn't have to do anything to them or send them back or anything. Um well, and you know, you bring that up, but think about this, guys. It's just as important. You, The customer doesn't want to, who likes to send stuff back and forth, right? No one yeah. does. It's a hassle, isn't it? It's just as much of a hassle for us to have the product come back. It has to all be checked. It has to be inspected. It has to be repackaged. It has to be re-inventoried and put on the shelf, and that's manpower. So it behooves us to spend a little time on the front end during the sale to mm -hmm. give you that customer service to get you fitted correctly, you know? Yeah. And that's something you don't get from no. any, any other company. Um, and then you're, you you said that's the one way of fitting someone. What's the other the way? The other way is to go through a custom boot system process. And, you know, recently we've been doing a lot of videos on this stuff, trying to educate people on our different processes. One of the videos they want us to do is who who needs to do the custom boot system? I'll tell you what. There are guys out there, I don't care who it is, they want the best. They don't want to mess around with it. They can afford it. They're serious hunters. They want to get it, they want to pay once, buy once, cry once, right? They don't want to go through the process half a dozen times. Custom boot system or somebody that just wants to do it right has a closet full of boots and none of the boots fit their foot because today you can spend upwards of $400 on a pair of boots and next thing you know you've got two grand invested in boots over the course of three or four years and none of them are fitting your right. The custom boot system process you purchase a mapping kit that that mapping kit shows up you step on the mapping kit outline the foot and with some photos we we a hundred percent identify the foot with the chart we get on the phone and we go through a console and that console you spill your guts about your past boot fit 
problems you've had with you. We list everything on there. Come up with the correct orthotic for your foot. It's made out of this polymer-based material. This is one of the standard standard footbeds, but but we make a custom that's more based on height, weight, arch, things like that. It's all ground and fitted to the boot, or I'm sorry, to the customer. And, and uh, then we go through a post-fitting consult with them to confirm that everything's right. So you've, you're really taking a boot, modifying that fit like you would if you were, you were going in to get downhill ski boots or hockey skates fitted to your foot. It's a very similar process. They'll match that, that, that shell to your foot. And believe it or not, when you get up into to the type of boots that you guys are wearing for your whitetail hunts right now to assist you when you're walking in or hiking in deep to do some of this hunting where this boot's appropriate for you, imperfection in the boot fit will shine because you're dealing with a more structured, more stable boot. The more structured it is, the more stable it is, the less the boot conforms to your foot shape, right? So you get pressure on the foot. That's why you got to get the fit right. But but having the structure and the stability is allows you to get on the sticks with a harness and stand there for an extended period of time, right? Yeah. Yeah, I can definitely notice, like if I wear a pair of crappy boots, for lack of a better word, like when I'm high, when I'm scouting, especially here. If I'm, if I walk 10 miles, you know, in a day out there and I'll get home, my feet will just be wrecked, you know, sure. whereas if I have something like this on your feet's not working nearly as hard. It, no, it's assisting you in your gait, you know, for mm -hmm. it's offloading it. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. Um, some people were asking in the comments about like just getting insoles for like rubber boots or whatever the case may be. Um, same kind of process. Yeah, it, the our, our standard footbed it can be purchased, and and that's an upgrade and that a lot of guys are doing right now. Yeah, I'm using my rubber boots. That's what I'm saying. They're they're taking them. They're just you know, hey, I, I'm wearing lacrosse or I'm wearing this or I'm wearing that, and it's a simple pull the insole out of it. If they don't want our team technicians back there to cut, grind, and fit it to their boots so they can just drop them in. They can buy it as a standalone footbed and they can cut it themselves. So there's really two options on that. They can buy a standard Synergy. It's called the High Country Synergy footbed. They can buy a standard footbed in a small, medium and large, cut that to fit their footwear by removing that stock insole out, drop it in place, or they can purchase this high country synergy footbed and the Wii custom fit option. They drop online, they drop their size in, the guys cut it, put it in a bag, pouse, ship it out to them. Dan, can you tell a pretty good difference between like the stock ones and the your custom yeah, footbeds? It's like a whole different boot. Really? Yeah. Gosh, I probably should do that. I didn't even think about that. Um, I just don't have many foot issues, you know, for like, you know, some people's feet just bother them and mine, mine really don't. Um, but I ought to try it just to see how much more comfortable it is. You know what? Bothered me after a week of gun hunting. Yeah. <laughs> well, after all your all your toenails fell off that one time. Right. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but but honestly, here it is. 
you, Josh, you don't have problems, right? Yeah. But you will eventually. And yeah. if you got it in your boot, right? You're golden. Maybe I won't then, right? That it's preventative, right? Yeah. Probably and so. And look, I'm not sitting here. I am not sitting here saying it. It is a cure all to everything. But I am telling you right now, the material that we're utilizing is proven medically, okay, to help protect the bottom of the foot, to stop blisters and hot spots, to absorb energy, to reduce rebound into the foot. That style of a device, I call this a device, inside of a stiff boot like this, that rocks, is what offloads the pressure on the bottom of the foot. It's what allows you to stand on two metal pegs up there with all your body weight on it, and it distributes it so you don't feel. I mean, we've all stood on steps with rubber boots on and felt how it feels like your arches are bending around that. And the mm -hmm. next thing you can hardly walk on them, especially if you did got ambitious and did two or three stands. Right. I did that when I was younger cause I didn't know any better. Didn't really have good footwear. And, uh, there's just some unbelievable, unbelievable technology now out there to help the guy that's doing a lot of, I mean, this kind of hunting you guys are doing, I I'm, blown away and you know i never i guess when i first started i did do some of it i did a lot of it on private property but i was still doing it right i was still going in and doing it because i didn't have stands right i couldn't afford it so i'd hop around a little bit and i guess it was probably brought up to me two or three years ago that this was something guys were really getting into and i think it's cool I think it's really cool and I can definitely see the need for this for a long period of time. You know, I, I can definitely tell, like if I, if I've been hunting in these for like a, a lot of hunts and then I go to my rubber boots where I hang my stand, I can definitely tell what you're talking oh, yeah. about. Like it's way more comfortable to hang something with, with these on. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, that's cool. I, I, and, uh, and everybody's a big fan of Lou from Stealth Outdoors. And Lou is the one that got me in contact with you. And he was he was really impressed with all the stuff that you guys have uh, kind of put together with your background and everything. You know, I, I remember that. And I forget how I did that. There was a there was a, a young guy that said was showing me some of his his kit, I'll call it right. And I was interested in it. It, it was. And I, I looked at it and he was, and I think he was talking to me about the silence tape, right? Yeah. Stealth strips. Yep. I picked the phone up and I called him. I oh, called okay. him on the telephone and I said, look, what can you tell me about this? I'm not real sure I understand exactly what you're doing with this. And he said, I'm going to send you some of this out. I bought it. And I, there'll be, there was like instructions in there, how, what pieces were for what, right? And he was really interested in what we were doing. And quite honestly, when we, he and I were talking, he mentioned to me on the phone that I needed to get a hold of Dan. He said, you need to yeah. talk to Dan. <laughs> I'll put you in contact with him. I, is, I'm telling you the truth. He did. Yeah. 
Yep. Lou's, Lou's a good guy. Um, you he's know, on here from time to time. I, I grew up uh, real cheap, um, not a lot of money. Um, I'd rather hunt than work, so I'd uh, just quit jobs when hunting season would come around. <laughs> and uh, I would hunt um, wearing tennis shoes, uh, even when I do the swamps. I, I can remember uh, I would prefer to tennis shoes when I was young over to boots because I was just going to get wet anyways. Walking around with a boot full of water sucked, so might as well just put the tennis shoes on and go at it. And then I'd leave, I wouldn't wear socks because then they would uh, they would just get full of muck and you got to throw them out when you're done anyway. So. My feet would get all cut up from the um, cattails. And, uh, you know, I had like a $20 steel stand that weighed like 50 pounds and pocket full of screw steps taped up so they wouldn't make noise. And um, I've come a long way. I'm, I'm right now, I, I like to keep, I'm like a minimalist. I like to have as little equipment as possible. What just exactly what I need to hunt, but I like that stuff to be quality. Um, and I kind of need that with my, as I age, I don't think everybody that's listening to this needs your boots, but I think, uh, there are certain people that probably could really use them. And, uh, you know, I was getting knee problems, leg problems, all kinds of stuff, um, probably because of the trains I'm walking on and the things I was doing. Um, and it's helped me out a lot. I appreciate that. That's good. That's what we want to do is help help folks you know seems like you kind of came from the same cloth listening to you talk dude you're sitting there talking about taping those steps up my my brother and i just this year when i went in to hunt this deer i realized i was gonna have to move it wasn't gonna happen if i didn't and i went i got up that morning and i walked out in my garage and i grabbed my stand and i laid that out and i went over to my pack and i dumped everything out of it and when I mean a pack, I'm talking about this little wool pack. I've used this forever. Doesn't match any of my camo. It's <laughs> my pack. Are you with me? It's been with me on I don't know how many kills, okay? This dates back to the stick bow stuff, Josh, okay? Yeah. This is my pack. Yeah. I've even got the same material, and I have disassembled products that were made out of this wool, and I've got it in a Ziploc bag in a Rubbermaid in the basement. So when I tear the pack up, I can get it sewn and patched. That's how that's going to work. Okay. <laughs> so I, I go out there that morning, I'm pulling all the BS out of this bag. Like anything I know I don't need is coming out because I'm going in and I'm going to be quiet. So I grab five of these steps, the sharpest steps I've got. And I go in with a bungee cord and I'm wrapping this stuff up to where it can't clank, it can't click, it can't, because I know I'm tiptoeing in in this spot and I'm waiting for everything to just erupt in there. <laughs> and I got the sweats just running off of me, right? And I can just snap a couple lens and I'm sitting up there and I mean, I'm just based and the sun is just burning me. <laughs> yep. Oh God. That just sounds like a standard early season hunt to me. Oh, well, so, it, was like, yeah, yeah. it was like October the 14th, something like mm -hmm. that. You know, we kind of had some roller coaster, but you talking about it, you know, I look back at this and it was like when James and I started hunting, my dad wasn't a hunter. My mom's side of the family from Northern Illinois. You're right. Illinois, you get up there. They shoot some massive deer up there, but that country is flat as a pancake. The dirt is jet black. 
and they own sections so big that they just go from one field to the next in a combine. It's all, it's big roads like for their equipment. And there's a waterway two miles off a blacktop road out in the middle, you know, with brush growing around it. it it's insane. But, but my mother's family up there, they were all, a couple of them liked the outdoors and hunting. I think that's where James and I got it. So when we, we kind of got into it, we had a family friend that I always thought it was cool. We'd go over to their house and I could see his mounts and stuff, right? And my mom must have figured this out that, that I was getting up really early in the morning before school to go and hunt. And I really didn't have appropriate footwear, right? Somehow, I don't know how this worked. I ended up with a pair of my grandfather Lathrop's boots. They were rubber boots. They kind of resembled like a Mickey Mouse boot, but they really weren't. They were much lighter than that. And I wore the heck out of those things. And they had a leak in them from where I ran bean stubble up in the arch of them. So I'd go on hunt and my feet would get wet and I would freeze out basically. And I have to get out. And then I'd come home. And that night when I get home from school, I had a hairdryer and they'd sit there and dry the inside of this boot out, try to patch whatever holes I could in preparation for the next morning to get up early, to go and hunt before school and then go to school, get out of school. It, it was my thing, man. I had a hard time staying focused on anything other yeah. than go hunting. I mean, still- I really did. It's a yeah. big, it's a massive part of my life. Like, when Josh, we were talking about shooting. I was talking to you this week about, man, it, it's got to me. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. I was successful. I stroked two really nice deer, made good shots on, you know, boom, 40 yards and down, right? Doesn't always work that way. I've been practicing three days a week. Man, I started getting in a major slump where I wasn't shooting well. I'm, I mean, it, and it eats me up, man. Oh, yeah. It does, it, it does uh, all of us. Before we uh, get to the question and answers, we got quite a few questions. But mm. turn your camera up. I can see some tines coming down off the buck behind you, but I can't. I can't see the <laughs> rest of them. <laughs> that looks like a big deer. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a. What's I I got that with my longbow. What? Uh, what's the story behind that guy? It was the first. You can t- yeah, you can turn your camera back down if you want. That's the first deer that I ever really used any kind of a camera. Like, a, you know, everyone's got cell cameras and trail cams now, right? Mm-hmm. Well, back then, I want to say the company, have you ever heard of it? I think it was Highlander. They look like know. a pelican case, a little pelican case. And they had a camera in them. And these things are about $450 a pop back then. This wasn't yeah. a Reconyx camera. This was like a Highlander that took a great big SD card, not the micro card, a big SD card. I popped that in there and I got on that deer. And it's the first buck that I went, bam, I want to hunt this deer. And I'm going to figure out how to get it done. And I hunted him wrong and hunted him wrong and hunted him wrong. But believe it or not, he actually taught me a lot. And I mean, I learned a lot. And I, where I got that deer's picture, I shot him probably 
four or five hundred yards away, and it was just a setup that I walked into the woods and I went, "This is going. This has got to be it." And there was no sign in there. It was just right. It you could just you could look at the cuts in the terrain, the creeks, the the direction that the creeks were running. You could see the density of the cover in there, and it just it was just perfect. I mean, it just. It just, it was a gut feeling, you know, I knew what was kind of off this direction. I knew what was off this direction and I'm thought it's gotta be it. And it was, thank God he didn't walk out from behind the tree. This is a true story. At 4.15 in the evening, it was November 2nd and it was an east wind and off to the southeast I saw a really big deer come off a ridge and I just saw the base, the base and the beams. And I thought, God, that's a heavy butt. And it came down and then 150 yards away, he turned and started coming my way. And he was coming through some pretty open timber, which is why I wasn't nudging much farther that way. And you know, I had a pin oak and you know what, you know, like a water oak, what pin oak water oak looks, it just got limbs coming off of them everywhere, mm -hmm. right? That son of a gun from 150 yards walked a straight line at me and kept that damn tree between me and him. And all I could see were legs on either side of that tree <laughs> coming right at me. And can you imagine watching that deer walk straight at you through an open woods at, from 150 yards? He stayed there. And at 35 yards, he popped out from behind that tree. 35 yards, quartering to me. And that's when my jaw went, oh, there he is. He's walked behind, walked behind me at, God, I don't know. I think it was 18 yards. And I remember the shot perfectly. Just, I remember he was walking through and I grunted and he stopped because I, I I know people do it. I don't like shooting deer walking. It makes me really nervous. And I stopped him and I remember coming back and I remember that string doing this coming back and I got <laughs> right about there and I almost let it go and I went, nope. And I sunk it. And when I sunk it, it was gone. I mean, there was no shoot in my brain. I was here like, uh, and I just went, and then as soon as it hit the corner of my mouth, I watched that fluorescent green knock just disappear behind his shoulder and he rolled 70 yards right in front of my eyes. Oh, nice. Happy. I love that. Yeah. I imagine that's a giant and, deer. And you, you know, what's really wicked about that story is, and I tell people this, you get jacked and energized about that because you share that kind of stuff with people that are like, God, I know I've been there. I felt that before. And it's like unreal. And you never forget that stuff. Like, you no. don't. No, I, I, my wife is like baffled by how much stuff I don't remember, but like, I can tell, I can tell you like, you know, very minute details about a deer hunt I was on or so. And some oh, of it's yeah. not even stuff that was really successful or anything, you know, it just was like, she's like, how do you remember that? But you can't remember like that. We have to go to this birthday party on Saturday. You know, <laughs> it's like, I don't you remember what's important. <laughs> I don't say that, Stephen. <laughs> uh, you know, you're talking about that, uh, 
trail camera. Um, yep. Way back when we used to have trail timers. Yep. Uh, you might remember those. I, I, I never used. I never used one of them. So a trail timer was basically a little watch that uh, had a string attached to it. When a deer would walk by, the string would pull out the the switch that connected the battery to the watch, and it would lock the time. And uh, people would actually use these to know what time a deer walked past, and it would only work once. You get one time. And I started thinking about that, and I got a camera, right? And I built a box. My dad was building these boxes when I was a kid that uh, you drop. They look like a bank. And when you drop the quarter in, it would land on a mousetrap and blow the box up. And he Yeah, I remember playing with them. Okay. So that gave me an idea. And I made a box and put uh, this camera in that box, mounted it in there. I made a wooden doll pin over the over the top of the, the button that you press to take a picture and put a mousetrap on top of it. And cut it out so that the spring would hit the doll pin and take a picture and then run a string across the uh, trail. And uh, I may have had the first trail cameras ever. <laughs> Did it work though? I'm well, the I pictures of deer. My friends were all amazed, but you get one picture. And, and a lot of times I'd wreck the, the camera because I'd drive that doll pin right through the button. But And it worked. It worked. Mm hmm. My gosh. <laughs> what a huge waste of time, it seems like. <laughs> now and you got to, you know, someone your age has got to be like, what the hell? I know. No, That's exactly right. You know, now I won't even go near it. You know, if I put a trail camera out, I won't even go near it because I don't want to get sent near it. And, you know, it's crazy. Oh, yeah. It's funny, though. Let's get into some questions. We've been on here. Uh, almost exactly an hour. So I haven't went through all of them, but we got quite a few. Everybody, I uh, left a link in the comments to hop on if you want to get on live and ask us a question live. Just make sure that you have a, uh, you know, you're in an appropriate spot because you'll be up here on camera and try to keep it as clean as possible. Um, yeah, make sure if you like what we're doing, hit the subscribe button and, and uh, leave a comment too. What's wrong? Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's uh. Hey, there's isn't one. That it? Ding ding. That's yeah. The, I need to get some kind of. Is? I need like a graphic that pops up whenever I say that. Like, doo -doo, click here. Uh, I'm not that technical yet, though. I'll work on it. It's off season. I don't have time right now. So, um, let's answer a question. We got uh, a call in here, Patrick. We'll get to you in just a second, buddy. Um, there was a question. How do you guys keep your feet warm? I've used warmers, wool socks. Seems like they sweat walking in and then they freeze in two hours. This is from Indiana Sportsman. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Stephen? Well, this is what I think. I'm not always right about it, but I, I didn't have a lot of ways of keeping my feet warm. The simple way that matches my style of hunting and of course, I'm not hiking in two miles through swamps. I'm I'm parking somewhere and walking in the depth of 40 acres, maybe sometimes a little more than that. I'm not riding a quad in to hunt anywhere. I'm not taking my boots off. I'm utilizing a rubber boot in that type of cold environment. And typically that rubber boot is going to be somewhere in that 1200, 800 uh, 
and now with this neoprene booty that they've got, that changes things a little bit with inside some of this footwear. But I'm controlling the moisture, and you guys are going to think this is goofy. You need to put antiperspirant on your skin for about a week and do it for about, yeah, seven days every evening. Just wipe your feet down. Um, you can get roll-on. You can actually buy some wipes, wipe the bottom of your feet. What that is, is there's aluminum chloride in there. And that aluminum chloride is what they use in antiperspirant for underarms. What that'll do is it'll build up in the skin and it'll actually stop you from sweating. We do this big time on guys that are doing high, high end, high altitude, um, late season uh, mule deer and, and um, elk hunts where they got a glass for a long, long period of time after they built a lot of sweat up in their feet. You know, the other thing that that we also, James and I have a footbed that we utilize for that cold weather, which insulates and actually also absorbs moisture. So it's drawing it away from the skin. Socks are important, but I don't, you know, the sock increases the pile around your foot. So you got more air around your foot, which helps to insulate. The big thing that guys do is they're putting too many socks on and then they're cramming their foot into a boot and then they compress the pile. Then they lose the insulation and now they're freezing. So, um, yeah, for my cold weather boots, uh, I got 800 gram boots and, uh, I purposely bought them, uh, one size too big so that there's air in them and they're much warmer than tight boots. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Um, some people are not, uh, that's a interesting suggestion. Steve, I never heard anybody say it works. That's the neat, yeah, that's uh, first you know. I've ever heard of that. Yeah. Um, well, anyway. when you, have you ever taken your, like your insole or your sock off and just felt the water on the bottom of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, something else a lot of guys do is like get a large wool sock, like a really big one and keep those with you and then put those over your, um, boots when you're in the stand to give you some insulation from the metal, um, between the metal and your, in your boot itself. And a lot of guys swear by that. I've never tried that before, but, um, anyway, there you go. Those, uh, boot warmers. I, I use those in Ohio. Those work pretty well. I took some of those, um, uh, they're same company that makes like hand warmers or whatever, but they're actually for boots. I think they're actually made differently too, because you, those are active all those warmers are activated by air flow or some kind of something like that and the, so the ones that go for your to your boots don't need as much air to activate so um which but you know it, it brings up one point and I, and I think about this stuff like you guys i'm sure when you're sitting up there you know trying to stay you know keep, keeping the climate right there's a tipping point like there's a tipping point and I don't care whether it's your, and, and I, like I'm bow hunting late season. Like it gets so cold that you, you want to climatize that release. Like you don't want that release getting in with a hand. Oh, yeah. When you pull that out, it just starts sweating. Right. And then you try, if you do have to grab that, it's, it's brutal. Right. Like when it really gets cold, this, there's a tipping point, just like in your, in your muff you know, to keep your hands warm. Like when you put your hands in there, you want them to start warming. But when they get to that point that they're getting so warm, they're, you're starting to sweat. You can get your hands back out of that, right? 
mm-hmm. or, or you just freeze out. And I think the tipping point with your, your feet are the same way. Like there's a fine line when that temperature drops, like where do you need to regulate to stay to where you can make that three to four hours sit in that really cold stuff. That's what I think, but I don't know. All right. Let's, uh, let's get a call in here. Patrick, can you hear us? Yeah. How y'all doing? Good. Hey, Dan, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Yeah, doing all right. Hey, uh, I called, I've probably been right before our season started here. And I don't know if y'all remember or not, but I was talking to y'all earlier. Um, yeah. man, I got a question. So I started the mobile hunting this year and this has probably been the best season I've had. I still hadn't killed yet. Um, had some close calls, went to, uh, went to Illinois on a hunt. I was going to go to Nebraska, but, uh, end up going to Illinois and man, it was really good on public up there. And, uh, just jumping around. Well, on my club here where I'm at, I've been doing the same thing, kind of hunting different spots. Well, I found, I had two target deer that I was hunting and one of them got killed. He was the drop time I told y'all about. Um, he got shot a couple, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Well, I went to my hunt, my second buck, and our, our rut just started like the big deer just got on their feet like day before yesterday. So, um, you know, the little bucks, they always start rutting around the first of November and they just get shot up real quick. Well, the bigger deer are starting to get on their feet. I hunted it yesterday, shot right under a really nice eight point um, in the morning, chasing some does, went and hunted them. Or Thanksgiving Day, I hunted one of those overlooked spots we kind of talked about that was um, like right by the camp that everybody leaves from in the morning. Saw a really big 10-point on Thanksgiving, kind of just doing a uh, observation sit just to see how it looked out there and what it was. And surprisingly, I saw a lot of deer. So I kind of left it. Well, I hunted it the next day in a spot where the deer had walked, where that pinpoint had walked and set my stand up, you know, saw a bunch of deer. He didn't show back up. So I kind of left it alone until I got a better win. Well, I went in there yesterday kind of on a whim um, just to see what was going on. And I watched him at 50 yards all the way down to 30 yards for uh, like an hour and a half. And the does were just all around me you know, stomping, they'd see me in the tree. I'd hide behind hunting out of saddle. So I'd hide behind it and then I'd get on one side and hide again. And like, well, I was trying not, you know, I wasn't moving. The tree was pretty big, but I was, I'm just kidding. I'm just, Oh, you're talking about the saddle. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know. Uh, Unfortunately where I'm sitting is in a cutover. So like the behind me is open woods and literally behind, behind the woods, there's a house. I can see it from my stand on the other club. So this cutover is probably about three or four years old and man, they're in there thick. It's crazy. I just never would have believed it rubs and stuff. So anyway, I watched him for, like I said, about an hour and a half. He got up to 30 yards, but the doe between me and him saw me when I shifted around the tree, he didn't get nervous. He really never paid attention to anything, but her, my question is, is I want to go back in there, but I know because I've seen him in there twice. Um, I hunted it again today. I probably shouldn't have, but I hunted it. We had a different wind. I changed trees and went on a side where I wouldn't get winded. Didn't see him. Didn't see the does come back in there. Um, 
they kind of got an idea I was in there because my wind hit a couple of them, but he didn't get spooked, but he knew something was up. So during the rut, I know you, I know that you, you bounce around, you know, during regular season trying to find spots. But if you find a deer like this that seems to be using a spot, and right now there's the does are really in there thick in this one specific spot. They're always in there. How how would you go about hunting that without trying to burn it out? I don't want to burn it out, but I know I want to hit it while it's hot and while he's using it. And we only have probably so if if the if the peak rut is now, we only have maybe till I'd say the sixth. Usually they kind of lock down, then the sixth they come out, and then our bigger deer really start moving around trying to find those last few does, and then it's just done. You know, pretty much until you know later in the season when they go to food. So like what would your suggestion be? Cause I've got another buck that I can hunt. I've hunted his bedding area. I've got tons of pictures of him, not his bedding area, but checking this doe bed for the last three weeks. He was, he finally daylighted for the first time. He's like a ghost finally daylighted for the first time, um, two days ago in the morning, but he's only using on a wind that I really can't get in there. Of course, uh, without him sp- smelling me probably so i mean i could go hunt that deer but this deer is this deer's pretty good too um that deer's older but his rack's not as good this deer's probably just judging by the way he acted uh at least a four and a half year old because he just wasn't you know he didn't have that anxiety about breeding the doe he just stood back stayed in the thick stuff while she fed in front of me i mean if, if he'd come this side of the brush instead of the other when they left he's he's 20 yards but he stayed at 40 with brushing between him but um, that that's all. I know I've kind of been long-winded. I just kind of wanted to let you know the whole scenario so that you could answer it appropriately. Would you, how would you hunt that, and or would you just leave it and just kind of let it ride, you know? So when I talk about uh, hopping around a lot, I'm talking about when you when you're not on something. If you're okay. on a, you know, hunt them, and, and I would kind of disagree with you about wanting to sit back just a little bit and be hesitant. Uh, you got to go in for the kill. Uh, a buck like that, you're not going to kill sitting on the edge, especially with all those does around us. But you just got to get in there and get it right the first time. So you really got to think about, you, you know, exactly where you got to be. And if you blow it, you blow it. Go hunt the other deer. But uh, I do think you need to jump in there right away and keep on okay. while he's there. Um, they don't stay in those patterns forever. You might breed that doe and there's another hot doe in a different group someplace else where you can't hunt and he's gone. Mm-hmm. Hunt him while he's there. When he disappears, then move on and either try to find where he moved or go after the other one. That'd be, yeah, I, 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 I did that today. I've been more aggressive because I start thinking and I go back into those old habits. Like I need to sit on the edge. I need to stay back. I don't want to, bu- but then I remember what you said, just be aggressive, go for it, go for the kill. I did that today. Cause there's a bunch of cane, you know, you've got our cane in this bottom is probably the equivalent of your cattails. I mean, it's so thick that, I mean, he can't be seen. And I actually watched a deer kind of use it today, a smaller buck. So that I, I went in there, but man, this cutover, there's not a lot of good trees to sit in. I mean, you were, man, you got to be still to not get picked. And the only place, and it's actually where I've got my stand is on the property line because we cut one side and then the other property is old virgin timber. So what they're doing is it's, I feel like they're almost using it like a food plot where they're staging because um, the night's always better. And it's right there the last hour. They're staging out there, feeding around in the cutover on browse and whatever's in there. And then boom there. Then when the dark hits, they're walking right out. I mean, in this open timber in front between two cabins, 
because they just they don't ever get messed with right there. So that that's kind of why I'm having to hunt that edge. So at least I have a backdrop, and I can find some trees that can. But I want to kind of get you know on him. I you know I guess I could hunt the ground. Well, the but thing is, once you've hunted this, you know, you know the, the those trees, the does are going to pick you off. Mm-hmm. He's going to come through there sometime during the night. He's going to smell where you walked and stuff, and uh, he's going to figure you out. Okay. So that's the moving around thing kind of helps a lot. Um, or having a bulletproof setup. Um, like where I'm hunting right now, I've hunted the same spot like four times now, but I got a camera and I got the same bucks coming in constantly. It seems like they're there every time I'm not. But what I can do is on a straight south wind, I can get in there without those deer ever knowing I was there because I got reach to them, but they don't come to where I'm at. If you can get away with that, then you're great. And, and if you've got a setup where they're not going to spot you, but if they're going to spot you or they're going to smell you or whatever, uh, going back to that same tree is probably not the greatest idea. Yeah, I'm done with that tree. I've got another tree picked out. It's not far from that tree, but like you're saying, it's bulletproof. I mean, if I'm, you know, the the best way to hunt it is on any west wind, um, northwest being the best because it blows it right back to where those cabins are, and behind you is a slough. So they just pinch down right in that little corner. I mean, they're not 100 yards from the main road where we're driving in and out, but it's like our cabin's at the very front, and then there's 2,600 acres and everybody goes past it. And I mean, I just watch those deer. They sit there and they listen and watch the cars go by and then go right back to them. With it. It's crazy um, that, that I found that. But I mean, I wouldn't have done that if it weren't for listening to y'all and kind of how y'all are doing the mobile hunt. So you know, the, the thing is, is, when you start hunting like this, you're going to start getting opportunities like you're getting and uh, they're going to go up, but you still got to, um, you, you're going to find out that most of the time the buck wins. You know, you, know I mean? you know what I mean? Yeah. Because we got a bulletproof uh, setup for a reason. Um, and it really gets down to an art of once you find out how to get on the bucks, then you got to find out how to kill them. And uh, I think that's where, um, you know, I kind of got a knack for that. And I see Josh has that knack too. You look at the mm-hmm. terrain and figure out, okay, I know he's in here. He's coming through here. And you sit back and you don't go in there quite. And you're like, what tree do I have to be in? And generally it's, there's like one spot you get away with. There's like one tree in the whole forest where you could literally kill that deer. And if you're not in that tree on the right day and wind, it won't happen. Yeah. Wind's going to be a big deal in this. I mean, cause of the way that that's, this is all laid out. So, well, I appreciate it, man. It's been a, like I said, my season's been better as far as opportunities or sightings uh, than I've ever done. And I've really gotten away from using my cameras. Um, because I've been so dependent on the cameras to hunt that now I'm, I mean, most of them are dead because they're, I mean, I'm finding deer without even using my cameras because I'm just going to these little spots that nobody hunts or has hunted in years. So, but, uh, thanks a lot, guys. Enjoy everything. Y'all have a good season. All right, man. Thanks guys. All right. We got a few other calls here. All right. Tony. Can you hear us, Tony? Hey, what's up? Hey, Tony. How's it going? Um, so I got kind of a question. It's it's really a complicated one because uh, so I hunt my work, and at work there's 50 bow hunters that can hunt it, and you have to apply. And I applied soon enough because I worked there, I guess. But um, so. At my headquarters building, I just, I, I'm the landscaper there. I just noticed this huge rub right in the middle of my south yard. 
so as Dan always says, uh, make them pay. You know what I mean? But uh, I, I figured out where he's at. There's this cattle pasture just south of the headquarters building. And so he's betting in that, and it's just waist-high um, grass, I guess. And it's just – he's just out there on a fence line. He's just sitting there. And out there they have specific areas that you can hunt and you can't hunt for because it's a research area, I guess, um, uh, agricultural research area. So the thing about it is uh, – I'm trying to think. They got certain places like you can hunt and can't hunt, I guess. And I can't hunt that cattle pasture because they have cattle in there from time to time. And there are trees just to the south of it, like a bunch of them, with a creek that goes right there. Like right up, right butted up against that cattle pasture. But he doesn't have to go there to eat because up by the headquarters building, there are uh, like a bunch of brassica plots for um, research and stuff and like corn stuff and bean stuff, just all sorts of food up there for him. So how would you hunt that if he really doesn't have to go to the trees much? I mean, and I can't hunt the cattle pasture. Can you get in a position where you can watch him? I can watch him. Yeah, I can. There's a, I would, I would observe him and, and wait for him to be making a mistake and then I'd move in. When he okay. uh, when he starts showing trends of um, going into um, like moving over to go after some does or and he comes within range of where you can you can shoot him, then I'd move to him. And I do that a lot in farm country, especially open country. I'll just watch from a distance for a long time until I see a pattern and move in. Okay. You know? I think yeah, I think I have a spot where I can maybe observe him, I guess, and then I guess move in. Um, I don't. Our rut's pretty much over here. It's Nebraska. There might be a second rut coming, but so I might have to wait a while. But I, I guess that'd be the option. I, yeah, but there's um, also it's don't move off of hard with the winds. I mean, they don't stand patterns for very long. I guess unless it gets starts getting really bitter cold, then they'll just kind of lock on a pattern. Yeah, that's another, okay. another thing. If it starts getting real cold, he may get up and move a lot farther. Let me ask you this: Are you able to walk over there, or are you? And so, not so the reason I found him was I was trying to be kind of stealthy alongside of the uh, fence line, mm -hmm. trying to get down to the trees because I knew he had to have been coming from them or coming from that direction. And I ended up bumping him yesterday, and he's he's a pretty big buck. So, um, but yeah, I bumped him, and I think he's gonna come back because the trees just get pounded by bow hunters, like just endless i i don't even hardly hunt there because they're like most of the 50 guys that hunt there they hunt in those trees hmm. so and I, yeah i walked through there a few times and i've seen like scouting wise just see stands in there and ground blinds and all sorts of stuff so but yeah well if it's uh too tough don't waste your season on it yeah i guess i do have a couple other bucks in mind um, this one's for the guy and, and still, uh, still hunt those other bucks is probably a good idea. You, okay. You in your back burner. But, uh, um, I mean, I've got places where there's, I got a place right now where there's an absolute giant 
coming through uh, a small property I can hunt. And I'm not even after him because he's not coming through in daylight. I mean, why waste my time? So yeah. I just uh, monitored, and if that changes, I'll move in for a kill. But for right now, he's not coming to where I can kill him in daylight. He's coming through regularly, but it's from 9 o'clock at night till 3 in the morning. You know, it's, you just got to take what you, you, you're you offered. And it was a, the re, That's kind of the reason I was asking you if you can walk where he's at because you can push him out and then hunt him where he goes. But if the trees are full of hunters, you're just going to push him to somebody else. Yeah. The day I did push him, though, I guess there weren't as many hunters that day. And so I was glad, I guess. But when I did push him, I probably set up wrong afterwards. I went to a part of the creek that was... Cause he went back to that creek and I went to a part that was where he couldn't see me go. Cause the stuff got too tall in the pasture. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think I pushed the envelope enough. As you always say, I probably should have went up the creek more, but didn't end up uh, doing that. So, yep. Um, I'm pretty sure he's probably still around. So. Uh, All right, man. Uh, well, I appreciate you calling in, Tony. We have uh, another guy waiting. So, good luck, Tony. Uh, Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you kill him, man. See ya. All right. Let's see here. All right, one more call in here. Ernie, can you hear us? Yeah. Hey. Hey, Ernie. Hey, Ernie. Hey, um, hey uh, Dan. I'm from uh, West Bend, so Washington County, just a little bit uh, away from you. And uh, my parents have a farm and I got three small sections that I can hunt. And I kind of had my rut planned around the section across the street from my house. And there's only south access from the road. And we, I basically hung cameras in August and I had a lot of bucks coming through. And, um, but I didn't hunt it until the end of October. Basically, I was going to leave it alone until the 26th and wait for conditions to be right well we got two weeks of south winds and i wasn't ready for that i do have a lease in tremplo with my friend jeremy that you know but um i didn't go up there as much as i should and i kind of planned on sticking around home and i just i really felt like i kind of screwed myself and i just was wondering like you know i know you got to have enough spots but with these small properties, it's like the deer associate the road with danger. Sometimes I can't even make it into the woods, like especially in the morning. Like I literally step one foot in the ditch and they're already blowing. And I only and I only hunt it with the wind blowing through the road. And it's just it seems like if I have the right wind, which is good for me, the deer don't come out. It's very tough because there's so much pressure. The farmers in my area, they got a couple thousand acres and they'll, if 10 does come out, they'll kill 10 of them. So it's, it's, it's very hard, very high pressure, you know? So it's, you know, I got to capitalize on my opportunities and with small pieces, I can't make any mistakes. You know, in Wisconsin, we open pretty early and I think that you're probably making a huge mistake waiting for rut. Honestly, if you get that property, well scouted, which I would assume you do living across the street. I can honestly tell you that uh, I, sh- I have shot the majority of my biggest bucks the first week of season in, in Wisconsin, not during rut. Now, during rut, I get the most opportunities at deer, 
but the biggest ones I shoot early. And the reason I bring that up is early, you're going to get away with a little more. You're going to be able to get in there a little better with the right wind, and they're going to move around a little easier early season than they do after being pressured all this this whole season. And um, they just get more wiry even when they're not pressured later in the season. I mean, they're just um, – when you see them in summer, there's, or I mean in September, they're still kind of on their summer pattern. That's something uh, you don't get, Stephen, because um, you guys open in October. Mm-hmm. But our September, in September up in Wisconsin is just awesome. Mm. And, uh, you really should take advantage of it. And and it, you got to remember, too, I mean, I hear a lot of people talk about uh, saving a spot for rut. It's got to be a good rut spot for you to save it for rut. It's not laid out to hunt for rut or you have a hard time getting in there and rut, you know, because there's no leaf cover or anything. It's probably not a good rut spot. I've got spots where I can kill real big bucks early season, but I can't kill them rut. And I've got places where I can't kill them early season, but I can kill them rut. You got to really evaluate that property as to when the best time to hunt there is. And the reason I bring that up is because you said that you were getting a lot of good pictures. From basically the picture started around the 18th. I didn't have any, any basically bucks at all from, and usually it's dead early season. That's why I I misunderstood. I thought you were saying you're getting pictures. Yeah. Basically from the 18th of October on, I had multiple opportunities of, of deer even on patterns, but with, with the wrong wind, it's like suicide just going in there completely wrong. Like not even like a slight variation. It's like completely wrong. Yeah. You can't go in there on a south wind if it's blowing right out. You're going to have to wait till you have a wind. You might wait. You, you might take uh, advantage of like a just off wind and take a property line or something in or something like that. Try some different ways of getting in there. Um, I don't know. I would have to just, if it were me, it would be driving me nuts and I'd be staring at the property. How can I get in here thinking about it? And what can I do? Do I have to make a morning hunt? Do I have to do an evening hunt? How can I sneak in here? Um, and that stuff will drive me nuts until I figure something out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one-sided access, so that's very difficult. I don't know. I'm going to think about maybe try and talk to some other landowners or get creative. I know it can be done. It's just, it's been difficult. For- I got the uh, same same thing. I mean, uh, the one private piece I hunt, which is uh, Dave's farm, um, has um, one axis and the west wind, which is our pre- pre- predominant wind, pulls right into the farm. I mean, and it's a narrow axis. So I got to either have like a north wind or a south wind and take one edge. And uh, uh, north don't really work because in the middle of the farm, you got to get around a big water source. You got to walk around, and your scent's going to blow right into all the bedding. So I, I love south winds, but I kind of need a straight south wind, which is like what we had today. You, you know, so I mean, for me, it's a patience game. Wait until I have the perfect wind, and then it took a long time to figure out exactly how you sit that, how you get in there, where you maneuver, and where you, you know, where your best positions are, and uh, that comes from just trying to force a way and find it. Okay, well, thank you. Appreciate it. Hard right, answer, but, but I can yeah. get <laughs> Thanks, Ernie. Talk yep. to you later, man. Yeah, bye. Good luck. Thanks. All right. We've been on here for an hour and a half. Sorry, everybody, in the comments. I know there was a lot of good questions. We just um, – I know when we were respectful of Dan and Stephen's time. Stephen's in the office, I think. I don't think he's even home. So I'm not. <laughs> he doesn't have internet. At his it's house. all right. I'm having a good time. Yeah, so um, anyway – uh, we'll 
there was a bunch of questions about late season. We may just have to do like a late season podcast or a show. That would be a good idea. It would be a good one. Yep. Just a full late season one. Uh, maybe we'll do that next next week unless someone kills something between now and then. Then we'll have to talk about that. But um, anyway, yeah, everybody. Uh, there's a link to Lathrop and Sons website on the in the uh, description down below if you guys are interested in getting on there. And um, Stephen, do you have anything else you want to uh, throw out there before we get off here? No, I just I appreciate you guys inviting you know us to to get on here and talk to you guys and it's been great working with you and who's us you and the guy above you that guy with the big <laughs> sorry that's funny <laughs> so is it is it is it just you and your brother that kind of run the yeah, company it's just, now? it's just james and i uh-huh okay gotcha and your dad's retiring obviously you said like this week so um, it's us yep all right Uh, Well, we appreciate it, man. And everybody, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks, Steve. Steve. Thanks, everybody.